We come now, brethren, to the preaching of God's Word, and I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Romans this morning, the book of Romans and the 16th chapter. And I'll be reading and then preaching this morning on verses 17 through 27. Romans 16, verses 17 through 27. And I invite you to read along silently as I read aloud this morning. Here the Apostle Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent, to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason, and so Sopater, my kinsman. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus, greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace. We thank you for the privilege that is ours this morning to hear your word preached. And we would ask now for the work of the Holy Spirit, that he would be our guide and our teacher, that he would reveal to us the truth of your word and apply it to our hearts in such a way that our thinking and our lives would be transformed to the glory of God and for our good. For we ask these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved, we come now to Paul's conclusion to the book of Romans. And this is a part of the book that some pastors might be tempted to read through quickly or to simply skip over altogether. For what possible value is there in hearing closing instructions or lists of different greetings or miscellaneous material? Some would say that there is very little value in considering such an ending at such length this morning. However, since we are committed to verse-by-verse -verse expository preaching, where our goal is to explain every verse of Scripture in its context and apply it to our lives, we see as much value in the concluding verses of inspired books of Scripture as what is found in the beginning or found in the middle. For while there may be times when a text may not seem very exciting, 
where a text may not seem very practical in nature, we know that every verse is to be preached and applied. Every pastor is to proclaim the whole counsel of God, every jot and every tittle of the word, for it is God's word to us. It is Holy Scripture to be heard and believed. In fact, all of Scripture is breathed out by God, and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And what is found here in these concluding words to Paul's letter to the Romans is not an exception, where they were meant not only to equip these saints in Rome for every good work, but they were also intended to profit us spiritually as believers today. For in these concluding verses to Romans 16, Paul gives us words along three themes, three important themes. First, he gives us words of caution. Secondly, he gives us words about his companions in ministry. And then thirdly, Paul gives us words of confirmation. Words of confirmation. Let's examine what the Apostle Paul states in these three areas briefly. And let's begin by considering here in verses 17 through 20, Paul's words of caution. Paul's words of caution. For Paul writes... I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out, to watch out. For although Paul was pleased with the progress that the saints in Rome were making, and he was confident, as he said earlier in this epistle, that they were being filled with all spiritual knowledge and the ability to instruct one another, Paul also felt it necessary to caution them as a congregation, to exhort them to watch out, to watch out for spiritual dangers that were presently among them, and especially for the threat of those who existed to cause divisions and to create obstacles. Paul knew that although the church at Rome had been established on a solid, firm, doctrinal foundation, and that the congregation itself had good intentions towards the pursuit and the maintenance of unity among them, there was still a clear and present danger among them, as there is still a clear and present danger within every church, that some might seek to divide them and oppose the path that they are committed to. How do these individuals endeavor to divide and oppose the path of the church? Well, Paul states here, continuing in verse 17, that they endeavor to do this by promoting doctrine that is contrary to what you have been taught. Promoting doctrine that is contrary to what you have been taught. For the strategy that is employed by those who wish to divide and conquer the local church is to question and to create doubt about what is being taught in the pulpit. 
to question and to create doubt about what is being taught in the pulpit and about what the church itself believes. And needless to say, this is one reason why pastors and teachers in the church need to be diligent in setting forth what the church believes and defending that doctrine. Because there are forces outside, yes, there are forces even inside churches that are determined to undermine what is being taught. What does Paul admonish the church at Rome to do whenever they encounter someone who appears to be determined to cause division? When they encounter someone who appears to create obstacles for the church? Well, Paul states here at the end of verse 17 that they are to what? To avoid them. Avoid them, or literally to keep away from them. For the wise path, the correct strategy in dealing with such individuals is not to go toe-to-toe with them in theological debate or conflict, nor is it to try to reason with them as though mere dialogue and argumentation can convince them. But when it becomes apparent that their hearts are set against the truth, and they have an agenda, a personal agenda, that would disrupt and do harm to the church, that they are to be avoided. They are to be avoided. They are not to be given the opportunity to air their ideas and their disagreements to the detriment of the unity and the spiritual well-being of the church. They are not to be given those opportunities. And let me just share with you, brother, in my conviction that there are many within churches today who would like to have opportunities to deter, to change the course of churches that they visit and churches that they frequent. And they are not to be given such opportunities if it is contrary to the doctrine which we have received. And yet, how can we know that we have countered or encountered such individuals? Well, first, they give themselves away by their doctrine, which is contrary to the truth, which Paul has already mentioned, which is why doctrine is so important. But there are also some ways that we can recognize them through their motives and through their character, which Paul also addresses here in verse 18. For Paul states here that such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Which implies, brethren, that there are naive Christians within churches who can fall easy prey to such individuals who are determined to cause confusion and dissension within the church. So two ways that we can recognize these individuals is by their complete unwillingness to submit to Christ who works through his church 
In fact, they would rather indulge themselves and cater to their own appetites and their own desires than those of Jesus Christ. And then secondly, they prey upon naive Christians. And they do so, Paul says, by using smooth talk and flattering words. Smooth talk and flattering words. And let me try to be as practical as I can here. If we encounter people who try to draw us away by smooth talk and flattering words that go against the truth as it is rightly taught and who want us to join them in that which would disrupt and harm the church, we must avoid them. We must stay away from them completely. For Christ and those who are appointed to protect the flock of God have the duty to address them. They have the duty to address them. And yet, how can we be more alert so that we are not drawn in? How can we make sure that we are not among the naive who are easily manipulated by such people? Well, I want you to notice that Paul mentioned several ways here in verses 19 and 20. Several ways. First, we can focus on being more obedient to what we do know. We can focus on being more obedient to what we do know. And brethren, I confess to you this morning, this is one area that I need to address in my own life. For as a pastor, there's a lot that I know I've received theological training. I've had many experiences in the ministry, and yet I need to be far more obedient to that which I know. Is that true in your life as well? If I was more obedient to what I know, then I would be less inclined to be deceived. I would not be so easily manipulated by some. Brother Mark read today that we are to be doers of the word and not just hearers. If we were doers of the word more, rather than merely hearers of the word only, then you and I would not be so easily led astray. We would not be so easily confused as to what is good and as to what is evil. We can also focus on growing in wisdom as to what is truly good and innocent and as to what is evil. In fact, Paul commended the saints at Rome for doing these things in verse 19. Notice what he says here in verse 19, for your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise. I want you to be smarter. I already know you have knowledge of the gospel. I already know that you're well taught and well established, but I want you to be wiser. Not just smarter, but wiser. I want you to know how to apply the truth that you know as to what is good and innocent and as to what is evil. For we are more, more vulnerable, Paul says, to being manipulated if we are lacking in true obedience and true wisdom. Then secondly, we need to remember that evil will be judged Evil will be judged, and that God's victory over 
conflict and evil is coming soon. God's victory over conflict and evil is coming soon. How does Paul stress this? Notice how he stresses it by reminding the saints in Rome here in verse 20 of Romans chapter 16 that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Brethren, I wish I had a whole Sunday to devote to that one statement. I was tempted. However, I've made a commitment to complete the book of Romans on this Lord's Day, and I want to honor that commitment. But what a, what a powerful statement is found here. What a comforting statement is found here. There should be no questions as to whether God will be victorious. There should be no questions as to whose side you and I are on. There is no question as to our ultimate victory. God will crush Satan. And notice the language. Not under his feet, but under our the victory is ours. We share in that victory. Thirdly, we can make sure that we are not quickly and easily manipulated by those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the truth by being strong in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. By being strong in grace. This is what Paul desired for the saints at Rome as a means of strengthening them, as we see here at the end of verse 20. So we need to be cautious. We need to be warned. We need to be alert for those who might cause divisions and create obstacles. We need to avoid them, remain true, to that doctrine which we've been taught. And not only did Paul express some words of caution here in our text, but he also expresses here in verses 21 through 24 some words about or from his companions in ministry. Some words about or from his companions in ministry. For Paul loved and appreciated his companions in ministry just as you and I should love ours. We should love those, we should treasure those who labor with us in the truth, who labor with us in the preaching of the gospel. Paul did not want his companions who were with him to remain anonymous, but he wanted them to be openly acknowledged. And last Lord's Day, we went through all the different greetings from the Apostle Paul to different members within the congregation. And we saw how important it was to pause and to consider all those greetings and all the nuggets of truth that were found there. Were there some nuggets here as well? As Paul speaks some words about and from his companions in the ministry. Let me, let me mention them under five heads very, very quickly. First, Paul mentions Timothy. Paul mentions Timothy, and most likely Timothy was already known to the saints at Rome because of 
his reputation as a protege and as a spiritual son of Paul. In fact, Timothy's faithfulness and usefulness as a ministry companion had already been praised in Paul's letters to the church at Corinth and to the church at Philippi to the church at Thessalonica. Paul was a true fellow worker in every sense of the term. So was Timothy. Timothy was a fellow worker with Paul, laboring selflessly beside Paul. Thus, in sending his own greeting here, Timothy was joining Paul in expressing his love for the church at Rome. Second, Paul mentions Lucius. Lucius. And as to his identity, there is little certainty. Some suggest that he is Luke, the beloved physician mentioned in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 14, and that Paul is simply using a different form of Luke's name here in verse 21. However, others suggest that he was Lucius of Cyrene, who was one of the prophets and teachers in Antioch, who first commissioned Paul and Barnabas to the work that God had called them to in Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Whoever he was, Luke, the beloved physician, or Lucius of Cyrene, that prophet and teacher in Antioch, he was a trusted brother. He was a valued companion. Paul loved him. Third, Paul mentions together as his kinsmen here in verse 21, Jason and Sosipater, who are both Jews. He calls them his kinsmen. And they were called to salvation under Paul's ministry. Jason was one of the first con converts of Paul in Thessalonica, according to Acts chapter 17. It appears from Acts chapter 20, verses 4 through 6, that Sosipater was also among the companions of Paul who met him at Troas after Paul left Ephesus. With both men, they must have been trustworthy companions to have traveled so long, to have been associated so long with the Apostle Paul. And by the way, the Apostle Paul was pretty particular about his companions in ministry. In fact, we read of one incident in Paul's life where he chose not to take a certain man with him on a course of ministry because he really wasn't sure whether he would be a trustworthy companion in ministry. Paul was particular about his companions. By the way, you and I should be particular about our companions in ministry also, right? We should be very selective. We should realize how our companions influence us and they encourage us. How they stand with us during difficult times. Fourth, Tertius, who we are told here in verse 22, wrote this letter who sends greetings in the Lord. He's included in our text as a companion of Paul. He was doubtless Paul's personal secretary. Paul's personal secretary, who must have had very close access to Paul and who was entrusted to express Paul's thoughts on paper faithfully and accurately. 
Think about the responsibility and trust that you give to a personal secretary, particularly one in Paul's position. He must have been a very trustworthy man. He must have been one that Paul could rely on, and that's how we should be as well, trustworthy and reliable. Fifthly, Paul mentions three men of influence. First, he mentions Gaius, who was hosting Paul in Corinth at the time of this writing, who also hosted the church in Corinth in his own house. So he was a leader of a house church. Then Paul mentions Erastus, the city treasurer of Corinth, which indicates that even city officials served as Paul's companions and promoted his ministry. And then lastly, Paul mentions Quartus, who is simply called our brother and who sends greetings to the Roman church here in verse 23 as well. Nothing is known of Quartus except that he was a brother in Christ, which, by the way, in the final analysis is quite enough. It's enough to know. Now, you might be asking this morning, why did Pastor just spend five minutes mentioning these people? I mention them because I want us to know that God gave Paul companions. And the ministry of these companions was influential in the ministry of Paul. And so there is a sense in which we are not just indebted to the ministry of the Apostle Paul, we're, we're indebted to these companions who traveled with Paul, who upheld Paul in prayer, who stood with Paul during difficult times, who encouraged Paul in every possible way that they could. So as Paul nears the end of this letter to the Roman church, he unselfishly provides the opportunity for his companions to be acknowledged and to send their own greetings to Rome as well. It's almost as though Paul stops his secretary for a moment and says, hey, let's let everybody else get a word in. Let's let everybody else send their greetings to Rome as well. Or maybe it happened differently. Maybe they saw Paul giving this epistle and his secretary reporting it, and they said, hey, Paul, would you mind, brother, if we added our voices? to let them know in Rome that we love them and care for them. Paul valued these individuals, and we should value them as well. We should value them as well. Then, beloved, in addition to the words of caution and his words about and from his companions in ministry, Paul finally does close this letter to the church with some words of confirmation. Some words of confirmation, which we find here in verses 25 through 27 of Romans 16 in the form of a closing doxology. A closing doxology. And who is this doxology addressed to? Well, as a form of praise, which is what a doxology is, it is addressed to God. Notice how this doxology begins here in verse 25. Now unto him, to him, for all the praise for what happened in Rome, for all the praise that happened within the lives of these individuals that we've been considering here the last two weeks should go to God. Just as all the praise for what has happened here at Sovereign Grace Baptist Church in Bonham, Texas, and 
continues to happen here at Sovereign Grace Baptist Church in Bonham, Texas, should go to God alone. Now to Him, unto Him. And what is this doxology actually praising God for? Well, I want you to notice it very carefully. It's praising God for His ability to strengthen His people. For His ability to strengthen His people. In fact, notice how it begins here in verse 25. Now to Him who strengthens you. That's the thematic statement. Strengthens you. So Paul's purpose after giving the church at Rome some words of caution about those who would weaken their hold on the truth and their commitment to unity was to reassure them through this doxology of God's strength, of God's ability to keep them strong against the forces and the individuals who would seek to overthrow their faith. And how does God strengthen them? How does he strengthen us? Well, according to this closing doxology, God does so in three ways. Three ways. First, Paul states here in verse 25 that God strengthens us according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. According to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. And of course, this is the reason why, brethren, why the gospel that Paul preached, the, the same gospel that we find in Scripture, must be preached constantly and faithfully to God's people. For where the gospel is preached, where Jesus Christ and salvation through him alone is proclaimed, God is giving strength to his people. God is establishing them in that truth which will not only save them to the uttermost, but will enable them to stand against the lies of the devil and the forces of evil that oppose his work even within the church. Therefore, if we desire to be strong believers, and I know we do, if we desire to be a strong church, and I know that we do, we must be committed to the gospel and to the preaching of Jesus Christ. We must major on the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We must be and maintain our emphasis as a gospel-centered church. For where the gospel is neglected, there will be weakness. Where the gospel is neglected, there will be weakness. Where God's people think that they have outgrown the gospel, that they have no need of the elementary truths of the gospel anymore, then pride and foolishness will rule. And disorder and chaos will be the result. And so as the Apostle Paul measured the strength of God's people by their faithful adherence to the gospel, let us measure our strength here by the extent to which we hear and proclaim it as well. For all things must be according to the gospel. All things must be according to the preaching of Jesus Christ. Then secondly, Paul states here in the middle of verse 25 and in the beginning of verse 26 that God strengthens according to. Notice this expression, according to, appears three times in this doxology. That's why there's three reasons, three 
according to, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. For this gospel message that now strengthens God's people is not a message to be hidden or concealed, but it is a glorious revelation of that which was once kept secret, but which is now to be declared to all the nations. For when we declare this revelation openly through the preaching of the prophetic writings of Scripture, we are revealing, when we proclaim this word, we are unleashing not just the message of the gospel, but also, according to Paul's reasoning here, a source of strength that was previously unknown. Rather than waiting for a revelation of mysteries that are still kept secret, you and I, through the hearing of the gospel, are now receiving that which has been freely and gloriously revealed by God, who now gives us strength. Needless to say, our response to the revelation of God through the gospel should be one of gratitude. Gratitude. For what we have already received in the gospel, brethren, many in the past hoped for, but did not receive with the same clarity that you and I have received it today. So we have no excuse not to proclaim the good news of the gospel. We should endeavor to take the message of salvation, the message of strength through Jesus Christ to others, given that it was delivered to us to be made known to all peoples as we have learned throughout Romans. And my question for us as individuals and as a church is, are we doing this? Are we making that which was once a mystery known? Are we sharing it with all the nations? Then thirdly, Paul states here at the end of verse 26 that God strengthens us in relation to the revealing of the gospel according to, there's another according to, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of the faith. And these words from the Apostle Paul no doubt speak to the universal commission that our God, who is eternal, has given to the church to boldly proclaim the gospel in strength so that all nations may come to the obedience of faith, not in their power, but by the Spirit's power. For behind the message of the gospel, so to speak, behind the truth that there is salvation in Jesus Christ and Him alone is the purpose of our eternal God. The purpose of our eternal God, who has decreed that all the elect of God will be saved and that all who belong to Jesus Christ, both Jew and Gentile, will be united to Christ. All. Needless to say, beloved, God is able to strengthen us in our endeavors to preach the gospel faithfully and consistently by this wonderful knowledge that his eternal purposes will not fail. Not only is our God eternal, but his eternal decree will not fail. All the things that he has purposed will most surely come to pass. 
all of them. We can labor under that confidence. What God has promised to us by means of his strength will not falter. In fact, this is why we know that the God of peace will crush Satan under our feet shortly. Back in verse 20. Because we have been assured of such a victory by his strength, by his eternal decree. And lastly, with respect to this closing doxology, Paul adds one final phrase that we must not overlook. Notice it here in verse 27. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Brethren, I can't think of a more fitting conclusion to the book of Romans than this one. For as we review in our minds what we've been exposed to in this book, we, we can't help but be overwhelmed, first of all, by the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God to the only wise God. In fact, as I think back on Paul's words in Romans chapter 11 and verse 33, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. Those words echo loudly again here in verse 27. Then this is also a fitting conclusion as well, because it beautifully summarizes the whole objective of this book. The whole objective of this book. And that is to give God glory forevermore. How? Through Jesus Christ. For to glorify God forever, we must be right about Jesus Christ. We must be right about Christ. We must be right about who he is. About who he is. And the book of Romans helped us to see this, didn't it? Even from the first chapter in verses 3 and 4, the first chapter, which identified Christ as the one who descended from David according to the flesh, who was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And we saw how the entire book of Romans expanded on this truth. And we must be right about salvation through Christ. We must be right about salvation through Christ. And the book of Romans has safely and carefully guided us through the doctrine of salvation. It pointed us repeatedly on every page, it seemed, to Jesus Christ, who at the right time died for the ungodly, so that God might show his love to us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, and to show us that if we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath to come? Romans 5, verse 6, verse 8, and verse 9. So, brethren, it has been your great pleasure to sit under the preaching of the book of Romans since April of last year. That's how long you as a congregation have heard the book of Romans expounded. Brethren, I pray that it has been an absolute delight.
I know it's been a delight for me to be involved in this, to begin preaching in Romans chapter 6 back in December of last year. I pray that all of us can not only confess that our faith is more certain and more enriched through this process and that we possess a greater boldness because of it, but that we can also say that we have been strengthened spiritually through hearing it. Have you been strengthened? And if so, go forth now in the strength of God to proclaim its message. Go forth now and faithfully live out its truths. Go forth now and teach others the glorious truths of this book that the teachings of the book of Romans might be understood by many, many more. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace. We thank you for this book that we've had the privilege of preaching through now for these many months. And we thank you that we've had this privilege. There are so many churches throughout history and so many believers in various places throughout the world that have not had this same kindness, have not been able to enjoy this same process of week-by-week exposition of a book like Romans. And help us to see not only how privileged we are, but how responsible we are now to take its truths and to apply them by your mercy and by your grace. Strengthen us in all grace. Help us today to be truly thankful, to be useful in your kingdom, for the glory of God, for the good of the church, for your blessing upon your people. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.